We've just launched two brand new shows on our LinkedIn page, and if you love our podcast, you should go and check them out. Every Tuesday, we deep dive into the biggest banking and fintech news stories with our show Newsroom. We've already had great episodes on the FinCEN files leak and the Crowdcube and Cedars merger that you can watch back on our LinkedIn or YouTube now. And every Thursday, we speak to experts in technology and financial services about the work that they do and their careers to date. Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Simon Taylor and in today's episode we're going to be talking about the gender gap in venture capital investment. As of COVID-19, the ensuing economic crisis and of course recent calls for racial justice start to show, the cost of complacency towards matters of equity is reaching a massive inflection point. With statistics that show both those making the decisions and those receiving the benefits are overwhelmingly white and male, the VC industry has a bit of a diversity problem that needs to be addressed top to bottom. And to dive into this topic, I am joined by some excellent, excellent guests. Returning to the show, we're joined by Gillian Williams, who is Investment Principal at Anthemis and Head of BLCK VC New York. Thanks for joining us, Gillian. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Anthemis and what Black VLC is all about? Yeah, it's great to be here. Um, Anthemis, we're an early stage fintech focused venture capital firm. We're based between New York and London as our two major hubs, but we invest broadly across North America and Europe primarily. Um, everything sort of precede to Series A. Uh, we've been around for about 10 years and I've been with the team for, for five years. Um, and then on the side, I also um, run the New York chapter of Black VC. And so what Black VC is, is it's really kind of goes with a mission to double the number of venture capital um, black venture capitalists in in the U.S. by 2024. Um, obviously, there's kind of a huge challenge, and so that came out um, this summer around how, as you said, not diverse the venture space is. Um, and not only does that mean from the investment side, but also that kind of trickles down into the founder side and where dollars go. Uh, and so the mission is really that we think that kind of by diversifying the investors, um, you can help to also uh, diversify and increase access for founders as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, making a FinTech Insider debut, and we have Jennifer Nundorfer, who is co-founder and general partner at January Ventures. Thanks for joining us, Jennifer. Can you tell us a little bit about January Ventures? Good that we have you on in a January, of course. That's right. Thanks, Simon. Glad to be here. January Ventures uh, invest early and open doors for the founders of the future. We invest at the pre-seed and seed stage and believe that the next generation of outsized returns will be driven by a different group of founders. And our goal at January is to level the playing field in venture to make that base of founders more diverse. And so we focus on investing at the pre-seed and seed stage, primarily in B2B software. We invest in the US and in Europe. My partner, Marin is located in Europe. I'm here in Boston, in the States. And our goal is to fully capitalize the founders in our portfolio from the start and then plug them into the more traditional venture capital ecosystem on the back end. And our commitment is to really leading with transparency and access and building a different venture fund from the ground up to better serve the, the underrepresented founders in our portfolio. 
the the power of transparency and access is I'm sure a theme we're going to keep coming back to so thank you Jennifer uh, and last but by no means least we have David Mott um, who's also making a debut on the show David is chair of the Venture Capital Committee at the British Private Equity and Venture Capital Association the BBCA and is co-founder of Oxford Capital thanks for joining us David um, for those who don't know could you give us a little insight into the BBCA please yeah sure so um Great to be here and uh, lovely to chat to you all. Um, so I've, I've been running Oxford Capital for 22 years now. Uh, we're an early stage tech VC uh, based in the UK, uh, based in Oxford, as our name suggests, but also with an office in London and um, backing early stage companies. And one of the, the roles I have is, is chairing the Venture Capital Committee for our industry association, the BVCA, which represents VCs and, and private equity firms. And... Um, Really, what we're on a mission to do is to showcase best practice and innovation in our sector. And that covers a whole wide range of topics, but we try and look at each of those topics through a very narrow VC lens. So, for example, we've been looking at how VCs make decisions. Um, what can VCs do to support founders um, and, and their mental health during the entrepreneurial journey? Um, looking at talent development and obviously uh, important topics like diversity and um, uh, ESG factors. David, I think so much ground to, to cover there in, in, in that, and we'll we'll dive right into it. Um, but we're just going to start out with some statistics, depending on where you look and where you read. There are a number of sources, whether it is the uh, British Business Bank, whether it is uh, Tidal uh, Equity or elsewhere. Um, the figures vary slightly country to country, but on average, it's estimated that just 1% to 2% of venture funding goes to businesses founded by an all-female team. Um, and indeed, uh, the, the female founder representation um, has improved, I believe, in recent years, but is still very, very low. Um, and more than 90% of all decision makers at VC firms over the last couple of years have indeed been men. Um, so I, I guess I'm going to start with uh, with you, Jennifer. Um, let's get into some history. Like, why is there such a big gender gap? What, what, what do you think are the root causes here? It's a great question, Simon, and one that we obviously think a lot about at January. And when we started January, we got the question a lot was is this a pipeline problem? Are there enough female founders starting companies? Uh, and it, could that be what represents the the funding gap? But if you look at the numbers, you can see that women are founding companies, and frankly, the number of women founding companies is just increasing exponentially. So Crunchbase had some data that from 2011 to 2015, there was a 72 percent increase in the number of female only founded you know, companies with female founders and an increase of 56% in companies with a male female co-founding team. So there's just a massive influx of women who are starting companies. We're at an all-time high of women who are working in big tech companies, seeing the hyper growth model and spinning out to start their own companies. So, you know, it's not a pipeline issue. And I can tell you, from our deal flow at January, we're just seeing unprecedented numbers of, of women starting companies um, and even seeing that continue through the, you know, the last 10 months of the pandemic where women like men are seeing, seeing opportunity and are jumping into that and starting companies. In my mind, venture capital is a pattern recognition game. This is how we underwrite risk as venture capitalists. And that pattern recognition leads to what is this funding gap? So you mentioned that 90% of venture capitalists are men, and many of those men pattern match against the investments that they've made, which has historically been in 
you know, predominantly white male founders. And so, you know, in my mind, it's, it's breaking that pattern matching or as Jillian said, getting capital into the hands of, of a much more diverse group of GPs and, and deployers that will begin to put a much wider variety of patterns into market and increase the diversity of, of founders that are at the table. If you change who the investor is, you change who the investments can be because the pattern matching changes. I, I really like that um, that mental model, uh, Jennifer, and that's super helpful. Um, Jillian, like who is more affected by this? Um, because of course there is the the gender diversity concern, but there's also uh, race is a, is a huge um, issue as well in in the investment space. Um, are there any stats that you've seen around that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, for the most part, it gets even worse for especially folks on the black community, especially for black women. Um, and I mean, if we think about it from a venture investor standpoint, I think about 2% of investment professionals in venture capital are black men and then black women don't even make a percentage point. Um, So the numbers are pretty abysmal. And I think it's not that, oh, if you have a black investor, then all all of a sudden you will have more black founders or or kind of same thing for other different um, types of people. But to Jen's point, a lot of venture is pattern recognition and you kind of wanting to, it's a very people focused business. And so when you're meeting with the founder, there's sort of that unspoken and something that you can't really put a finger on of, oh, wow, I think this person's going to be a great founder. And some of that probably comes from different biases that it's what you've seen, it's what you know. And even if you're not actively doing it, that's what happens. And so if you've never been around or really interacted with someone who is of the Hispanic community or someone that's LGBTQ, you probably won't have that feeling of, oh, yes, no, I, I can trust this person. I really think that they're going to be a great founder. And so that becomes really harmful. Uh, I think, and this is very tangential to venture, but one of the funnier things I watched one time was an episode of Shark Tank and one of um, the judges, and someone was pitching sort of waxing strips for your upper lip. And one of the male judges was like, or all the male judges were like, women don't have any hair on their upper lip like we don't need this and the one female judge was like no like the reason why is because these exist so even small things like that if you have no perception of it you're never going to really be able to relate with whether it's the founder or the product what they're building and I think that unconscious bias and just sometimes ignorance to another person's experience can miss out on an entire market and miss out on an entire market opportunity Jen Jennifer you wanted to jump in there Yeah, just to underscore Jillian's point, we did some research in 2018 to really break down that 2% number to look at where the the gap really started. And so what we did was normalize the funding amounts for early stage founders. And what we found was that for every dollar that a male founder raised, women raised on average 37 cents and black women raised an average of two cents. And so if you think of what you can do if you have a full dollar, and you know, you're going out and hiring a team, getting office space, scaling versus 37 cents or two cents. It just shows how undercapitalized um, female founders are, particularly black female founders are from the start. And venture is a momentum game. So if you are undercapitalized at the start, it's very hard to build momentum, hit those milestones that then a later stage VC is going to say, oh, okay, this pattern recognize, you know, this pattern matches against what I see defined at the seed stage or the series A or the growth phase. And so it really that that data just underlies how early these gaps start and how important it is to make sure that female founders and underrepresented founders are are fully capitalized at the start 
in order to go on and raise further down the venture continuum. I think on that point, Jennifer, as well, there's a good report by BCG um, that says uh, women-founded companies tend to uh, perform uh, extremely well, especially if they're part of a co-founding team. So I think over a five-year period, companies co-founded or founded by women generate 10% cumulative more revenue than all male-founded companies. Uh, The data is is quite clear there. And on a dollar-per-dollar basis, companies founded by women generate 78 cents per dollar invested. Whereas companies founded by men generate 31 cents per every dollar invested. And again, a lot of that speaks to the amount going in in the first place, but also the productivity of what, of what people are doing um, more with, with less. I was listening to a really good interview with the founder of Stitch Fix um, and what a phenomenal entrepreneur you have there. And, and she was talking, but until uh, I think it was Bill Gurley and Benchmark really invested in those guys, um, then there was, there was a really number of lean years where they were trying to make ends meet, but they did. And that's an incredible story. But imagine if we opened that up. I think those are great points. Uh, David, I, w- I want to bring you in here uh, as you reflect on the comments from uh, Jillian and Jennifer. Um, what, is the, uh, what is the industry doing? What data do you have that, that can really sort of uh, emphasize some of these points? Well, um, there's a lot going on, uh, which is the good news. Um, the bad news is it's probably still not enough. Um, but it, it, the, the, the issue really sort of came to prominence within the, the venture capital end of the market, um, maybe five years ago. Um, and for the last four years or so, that we've been collecting data. So there's a number of organizations um, through Diversity VC in the UK and the British Business Bank who are now collecting data on a regular basis. And it, the old adage, obviously, is you know, what gets measured gets managed. And, and I really want to sort of pick up on Jennifer's point about you know, this, the momentum game here. Um, you know, the, the, the more uh, we can collect the data, the more we can track things, the better. And the more no's uh, and the more rejections there are of female founders and, and, um, and BAME founders, the, the more yeses there will be as well. And, uh, and you know, that, that's, it is, it, there's, a, there's definitely a volume aspect to it. Uh, one of the interesting developments um, is, is, has been linked to COVID, actually. So in the UK, the British Business Bank launched uh, the Future Fund. Uh, last year, which was to, there to support tech companies with matched funding when um, that, that needed to raise money. And one of the requirements they put in is that if you want to get uh, future fund uh, support, you must sign up to the investing in women code, which means that in each venture capital firm, and now there are you know, dozens and dozens of VC firms that have raised money through, uh, that, that have raised money for their portfolio companies through the future fund. And these, these firms now have to have one uh, person dedicated to collecting the data and to submit the data to, um, to the government, to, treasure, to the Treasury, to collect the stats. So it's still very early days, but we're starting to see the data come through. And that's, it. that's exciting now. Um, it, it's, as I said, it's still early days, and it's difficult to know whether uh, the data is really happening. And what it shows so far is the numbers are still really small, and they're embarrassingly small. Now, the, I think that we, we can also start looking at some of the um, sort of you know, less empirical data. What's the, what's the, what's the, what are we seeing on, on um, uh, in terms of evidence? And and um, I think one of the key things is now that there is definitely a very strong awareness of the need for greater diversity within teams um, and within your portfolio base. If you're an all male team only backing male founders only from 
Oxford and Cambridge universities and occasional ones who've been to Harvard or something, it's just not going to be a, a, a great a great story to tell. And the LPs are starting to play, put pressure on um, on on VCs, on GPs. You know, the, the British Business Bank, I don't want to mention them too much, but you know they, they are now the biggest investor in venture funds in the UK. And they are asking a lot of questions about your diversity, about your policies, about your deal flow statistics. And I think if you change the LP behavior, the GP behavior has to change as a result because of the flow of capital. And, and I think that's a, a phenomenal point. If you can measure it, you can manage it. If you can provide the transparency, as I think Jennifer said at the beginning, um, you can you can hopefully start to to move it in that direction. Um, but but I just want to um, bring it back around to to Gillian uh, to close off this sort of the the history section of of the show at the beginning, which is. There's a level of cognitive dissonance here that's kind of interesting. You know, there's a really good report. Again, more data. Um, Morgan Stanley, VCs could expand their projected returns to investors by $4.4 trillion by committing to equitable investing practices. Other than the, the the psychology thing, like the data feels really out there. Is it just a case of like representation throughout the stack or is there is there something else? Is there going to be a tipping point somewhere? I think, I, I mean, I don't think that it will solve the problem immediately just by diversifying teams. But I think it, the whole point of venture is kind of trying to find opportunities that others aren't seeing as early as possible. And so if you're, if people are overlooking groups of people, then, and there's so much data proving that these groups of people can um, provide outsized returns, then I think there's clearly going to be an opportunity in funding them. And I think it really is, as David was saying, kind of now that it's kind of out there and open, I think it was probably something that people realized. If you look at teams' websites and saw the lack of diversity, if you looked at like your portfolio companies and saw the lack of diversity, like you kind of somewhat realized it. But I think now that it's out in the open and people have to address it more, then I think that conversation can change quite a bit. And so I do think that as, and I think also as David was saying, as sort of it can come from the top. So as the LPs are pushing it more so than then the VCs change. And then as the VCs are pushing more, so then the founders and founding teams change. And so I think that it really does require sort of a push from all ends of the spectrum to really change it from sort of founder to to LP standpoint. Um, and I don't think sort of just one thing is going to necessarily fix it, but I think it has to come kind of from from all different areas of the venture world and tech world. No, yeah, I think Julian to echo that point that the sort of uh, David's point about the British Business Bank is a major, if not the most major LP in most of the the British um, kind of venture funds. Uh, it having those requirements is is hugely helpful to to kind of create a, the top down piece. But I wonder, um, Jennifer, are there some other industry wide organizational barriers that we could start to overcome, um, and what might they be? Yeah, that's it's such a big question to to dive into. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of this comes down to networks. So, so much of venture venture works very well. You know, traditional venture works very well for a certain set of people that have a pedigree or have worked in a certain place and have access to that network. And so much of venture capital has built has been built on this concept of the warm intro. And the warm intro only works if you're already on the inside. And as Jillian mentioned, so many founders have been overlooked because they're on the outside of that network. And you know what's interesting, if you think of our country, so I say our country, I'm here in the US, but this is true, you know, the same trends are happening globally. In the US, 
we will be a minority majority country in the next 20 years. Women control the majority of household spend. Um, there are record numbers of women who are in the corporate world as buyers. And so, you know, I think that sort of structurally as venture, we need to recognize that, that the set of opportunities we're investing in has fundamentally changed. Those demographic shifts are creating new opportunities. Um, and what's ironic is that if you think of a venture, we are rewarded for investing in innovation. But for so long, the model with which venture capitalists deploy their capital has stayed the same. It's been this closed network, warm intro-based. And so what's exciting is seeing um, venture funds or sort of platforms that are beginning to create real innovation on the space. One thing that I think is, is really interesting is what AngelList is doing with rolling funds. And that is allowing you know solo GPs, people who may be operators, and frankly, a much more diverse group of, of GPs to stand up funds and begin monetizing their networks and their deal flow. Um, so that's, I think, one piece that is leading to, to greater diversity. Could you briefly define rolling funds? Because it's a term that comes up quite a bit. And, and I, I only found out what it was two weeks ago. And I think maybe some listeners might enjoy the, the definition as well, because I agree uh, that rise of the solo capitalist, solo GP is super interesting. Happy to. So AngelList, many people will know um, as, as a funding platform. And they've really gone deep developing a fund admin platform. And so what these rolling funds are is um, evergreen funds where a GP is able to raise capital, LPs commit to basically on a subscription basis. So it's a much shorter commitment. They are not committing to 10-year fund cycles. Um, and, and they're able to put much lower amounts of capital in and secure the deal flow of these, these GPs. And what you'll see is rather than going and building out a big venture capital fund, these GPs are using the rolling fund to quickly access capital and put it to work in a much more efficient mechanism. Um, and Jennifer, I was going to say, that, and, and things like that um, are really sort of changing the dynamic of who can be a GP that that, that sort of changes the nature of the market. And uh, you sort of the, the traditional requirements, and as you say, the, uh, the fund administration side is being done more and more sort of as a service. So the things that you would have required 10 years ago to set up a fund, are, are because the barriers to that are hopefully coming down, which hopefully opens up the, the pool of, of who's available. And um, David, I want to come back to you on that sort of top-down model piece. Piece as well, and and look at um, what are the other things from a from a barriers standpoint, you know, that top down could achieve, and or that the rest of the industry, as you think about it from an industry association perspective, can do to start to pull down some of those um, inclusion barriers. So I think it, it, it's um, it's definitely a sort of top down thing, but there's also a, a, an all pervasive thing. It's great that we're talking about this today, and we want to encourage as many conversations as possible. So the, the policymakers and, and the, uh, the LPs can stipulate um, uh, certain requirements, uh, you know, set, set down conditions on, on receiving support or funding. Um, but uh, we can also all sort of set the, set the tone, writing about it more, blogging about it, um, you know, getting, in, getting inv involved in social media, uh, and just just making this normalizing the conversation, because I think the embarrassment factor uh, is of of not um, uh, having a more diverse team, uh, and not having greater gender equality, and 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 having a, a startup with a um, with a with a you know, when companies grow over a certain number of people in the UK, I think it's two hundred and fifty people, you start to start publishing your gender pay gap. If if these start looking bad. That's embarrassing. It reflects badly on the investor. It reflects badly on 
on, on the LPs. So um, I think we can, you know, we need to try and make this a, an all pervasive um, uh, uh, set of conversations. I think if, if I sort of look at the wider industry, what else can we do? Um, I'd also sort of look at sort of top down from the other end. So one, we've talked about the, the LPs and people investing into funds, but maybe let's look at what are the sources of deal of, of deal flow. And I think the, the incubators, the accelerators, um, you know, how people are selecting people into their programs, how they're encouraging uh, co-founders to get together. Um, how how they're helping um, recruitment policies on, on on in 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 getting you know, starting to build um, teams and taking those first steps. I think that that's a really important part of getting of of getting the conversation going and getting action, real action um, into into play. So I, I think you know we can look at it at, at at both ends. One of the things we do at Oxford Capital is really focus on helping. Uh, companies take uh, helping startups take their first steps around ESG, and that and what does that mean? You know, ESG is is you know, mainly talked about in the public markets when there's masses of data and there are whole teams of accountants able to control and um, uh, you know, calculate the KPIs for how much carbon they're using here and there. But actually, you know, it, when when you're a startup and you've got three people and everyone's completely flat out developing the product and trying to win that first customer, you know, there's very little resource. And there's, and there's very little to measure. But if you can just pick one thing and start measuring one thing and report on it at every board meeting, it then starts being part of the DNA of the business. And, and if you do that month after month, year after year, it'll improve with every round of funding. It'll improve with every month that goes by and, uh, and become more useful. And, that, and I think that's a really important way of um, getting, get, getting it to happen. So we, we should look at it top down from the fund side and from the sourcing deal flow company creation side i really like that perspective uh, david thank you so much I, th- I think that that combination is is going to be really really key um and it, and it speaks to um jennifer's point earlier as well about sort of uh, really seeing this uh, as, as holistically as possible and, and kind of um being data driven as well um Gillian, uh, I, I just want to get to the kind of the impact side of it. I mean, David mentioned the three letters ESG and, and kind of um, keeping people um, th- thinking about impact. I mean, what is the impact and the result of capital not flowing to some of these female founders? Are there are there what are the alternatives? What, what what's that doing for society? What's that doing for for for, for everybody else? Yeah, I think there's a society and like a it's important to do this to do something good. And also from a revenue growth standpoint as well. I think one thing that we always say to our founders is we kind of invest into any type of founder, but given we are investing extremely early and we're investing at the intersection of two pretty not diverse um, ecosystems, financial services and technology, we want our companies to represent what their customers are going to look like. So if we are investing into three founders and they can all look identical when they are hiring and growing their team from three to 10 to 15, we try to help them have as diverse of a pipeline as possible and create a company that's more diverse so that when the first, so it's not that a woman comes in and is the first woman in 50 people, um, but instead sort of part of that culture is really developed at an early stage. And so for us, I mean, we think about it not just from a, oh, it's important to do this to be a good company and do something for society, but it's important to do this because you're serving a customer and you are trying and as I think as Jen was giving the stats around how diverse the US populations are going to look, 
if you are only catering to one type of customer or only only have one type of person in a, in a team, you're going to miss out on a lot of other opportunities and things will probably be missed or overlooked because you don't have that different perspective on the team. I really like that sort of very commercial hard-nosed focus on uh, the opportunity, the commercial opportunity you will miss if you don't, but also the the talent opportunity you will miss if you don't, because there's data on both sides. Um, if you could double your talent pool and you could uh, kind of open up new markets, why wouldn't you want that? And I think that's a really good point to uh, to kind of just have a, a brief word from our sponsors. So uh, we're just going to take a quick break here to hear from our sponsors, and we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personal digital banking. They are reviving the vision of financial institutions being on a first-name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal, human-centered service that puts the customer first. Your customers experience immediate accessibility while your employees get cloud-based, core-connected tools to offer service at the moment of need. To learn more, explore the team's latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com. This episode is also brought to you by MyTech. Digital identity verification trusted the world over. Secure more high-value customers while reducing risk and costs with MyTech, a global leader and enterprise partner in identity verification technology. Create certainty in today's digital world with MyTech. Thank you very much, as always, to our wonderful, wonderful sponsors. Um, Back on with the show, I'm guessing, um, Jennifer, I'm I'm interested in your perspectives on how female-focused VCs aim to diversify their investments to include more female co-founded ventures. What what have you found? What actions and processes have really um, been altered, adapted to uh, to overturn some biases and generate those returns? Because I think Gillian was talking about talent pipeline earlier and, and and kind of helping people hire. Are there other things along those lines that you've really found on your journey? Yeah, I think there are really three three levers to pull. You know, first is who are the executives in the companies that we're investing in. Who are the advisors around them and who are the investors in that company? And and all three of those pools are at play as we think of how do we level the playing field and have more women in in venture and tech, right? And and get them fully capitalized and and have them be successful. So at January, half of our companies have male, female co-founding teams. Again, that fuels that diversity of thought and is consistent with all those statistics that you shared, Simon, about that diversity of thought really fueling returns. Um, And I think from the seat of venture capitalists, the way to find those founders is to really make it clear that those are the founders that you're looking for uh, and and be proactive about building those partnerships on a sourcing perspective. uh, And then also go out and find those founders and begin to build that brand and that, that word of mouth that for us has been very strong because turns out these women, when they're starting companies, they talk to each other and they start saying, you know, which funds should we be talking to? And so it can become a a very virtuous cycle. Um, I think you you also see a a lot of effort to, even if a a fund is not, doesn't have a mandate to invest in female founders specifically, there's a lot of focus on where the role of women within that company and are there women on a management team? Is it a team of male founders who is very proactive about making sure that they're promoting women within their ranks? And maybe they're working with, you know, uh, some female GPs to make sure that they have access to that, that talent of executive pipeline that they can hire into their company. I also mentioned advisors and investors. And 
you know, if we think of this virtuous cycle, um, so much of what we are focused at at January is making sure that when these companies and these female founders that we're invested in become wildly successful, that the group of investors that they make wealthy is as diverse as, as the team itself. And so when Lyft went public last year, there's a great New York Times piece tracing back the capital flows. And it basically went back to the same five white men, which is very typical for a lot of these exits and IPOs. And so one of the things that we work with our portfolio companies on is making sure that their investor base is sufficiently diverse. We do the same thing with our own LP base so that as we go forward, we are not only making female founders wildly successful, but we're building the next generation of LPs by, by creating wealth. And you know, I think this issue of equity in venture, we, we can talk about it more if it's of interest to you, Simon, but you know, th that is where there is great inequality and a lot of work to be done uh, in moving women forward. Well, I, I, on like exactly that point, I mean, Gillian, I'd, I'd love your thoughts on that because I think as somebody in the space, that's probably something you see on, on a regular basis. And I, I think about the ecosystem as almost farming. You have this creative destruction of a, a company reaches IPO, the capital returns somewhere and the cycle repeats. But actually, if the capital is all returning to the same place, that the only cycle that would repeat is the one that's only repeated. So uh, is this something you're seeing day to day? And, and how do we start to, to uh, deal with some of that? Yeah, I, I think it, it it absolutely is a challenge, and I think especially in twenty, you want to say it was twenty nineteen, with a bunch of the high profile IPOs of, in tech space. To Jen's point, most of them had sort of the same investors in them at some point. I mean, to be honest, that's part of being a great investor that you're able to pick those companies that um, become that go public uh, at really large um, amounts, really large valuations, and I think. What is changing right now is, and I think we talked about just making it easier to start funds, that there are more funds now and there are more investors that are coming and creating their own funds, having different backgrounds, having different mandates, and really trying to find the next companies that can be those massive investments, but really looking at it from different angles and hopefully providing different people that would be on the cap table. And I think there are a lot of founders that, obviously it's not everybody, but that do think about it quite a bit and do think about what their cap table looks like and who they're helping to get rich. And there are many, and I think it's especially sort of women and um, diverse founders that are more so looking to have that diversity on their cap table. Um, so obviously you want the best investor possible, but also you want, you want to help others kind of increase their wealth as well and have them along for the journey. And also they bring different networks as well. As we said, investors are supposed to be doing as much as possible to help their founders. And if you have the same investors that have the same exact networks, that's not going to help you as much if you can kind of diversify that and figure out where you can pull from. Um, and so, I mean, I think it is slowly changing. Um, but obviously, sort of when we look at the sizes of funds and who runs the largest funds, you're kind of seeing those same candidates. And a lot of the newer funds are still small. They're emerging managers. And also, it's a lot harder for women and for people of color to raise venture capital funds. And so that you they have more micro funds and, and sort of the like up to $50 million funds. So it is harder for them to be able to deploy as much capital. Yeah. And, and is the micro fund... And historically, the micro funds, there was only so much um, upside in those LPs only like them so much to a certain degree. So there's there's only a type, a class of LP. Um, it really is, as Jonathan Fink was saying at the beginning, it's such a momentum business that you need the momentum to get the momentum uh, and you can end up staying small for, for, for a long time. Jennifer, you wanted to jump in there, I think. 
Yeah, one more point on equity. We've talked a lot about the LP side of this, but one issue that doesn't get as much visibility is the equity gap between male and female founders. And ownership is what drives wealth. And some of our research shows that women are just systematically marginalized when it comes to startup equity, which frankly is one of the biggest wealth generators of our time. So a study that we did in conjunction with Carta found that equity is actually, you know, more has more inequality than income. And female founders own 5% of startup equity, while male founders own 64%. And so what that means is that the average female founder owns just 48 cents on the dollar to what her male colleagues own. And as an example, only 20% of cap table millionaires are women. And so to, you know, Jillian's point about how this all gets recycled back, I think one of the responsibilities that that I feel as a venture capitalist is making sure that when we invest in female founders, they are appropriately compensated and have meaningful equity so that when they are wildly successful, they they, they have the wealth that goes along with that. Um, and then that cycle, that virtuous cycle can happen from there. I think it's been well understood in the VC world for for some time that you want to make sure that the the talent in the organization is it has an incentive to stick around and is going to continue building that organization. And um, but actually looking at that from from the equity lens, I think is is really really powerful. Which is to also say, how are you going to make this company successful in in that sense? Are you really balancing that equity to get the outcome for this business that it really needs? Because by balancing the equity, all the data shows that it will. So. Uh, you're a being a good steward of that company, and B, you're also standing up for um, a, a, all of the principles that you've outlined, kind of a, a, at the outset, which I think is is extremely powerful. David, I'm I'm interested to come to you on sort of the the incumbent VC, as it were, the the tenth time fund, the one that's been at it for for ten years as well. So, you know, capital again is a compounding game, uh, and there there are still a lot of uh, folks out there that have compounded and done extremely well. You know, what changes should they be looking at? Um, you know, there's there's obviously the industry level, but what about inside of the fund? What about the GPs themselves? What about the, all of the white males like us? What, what what should we be doing? Well, I think it's a it's a it's a good question. Uh, um, my own fund is 22 years old. Uh, half of my investment team are, are, are women today, um, and it's um, and that's and that's a lot more than it was 10 15 years ago. So I, I think the, the agenda is, is largely the same, whether you're a big firm or a small firm. Um, if I was starting a firm again today, I'd think very carefully about who I wanted to bring on board as, as, as partners and, I would, and diversity would be right, you know, really front of mind. And I think that really, you, you see it uh, to, today with all the new firms that are being set up. Um, for the older firms, the, one of the key issues for them, it's about you know, holding on to their, their top talent um, nurturing the ne- and and planning for succession of the next generation. Who are the people coming through? You know, there are now the VC industry is still relatively young, but there are some firms that have been around for twenty, thirty, even forty years old, and um, and they've been through a number of uh, successive generational um, successions. A lot of VCs never make it through uh, a, 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 another generation of, uh, of of partners. What tends to happen is. The old partners will hang in there till the end, and then and then they they just quit. So that cre- also creates this sort of creative destruction thing we were talking about with uh, with new partners going off and starting up new funds and new funds with innovative business models, uh, sharing carry with 
with the, the founders that they're backing, um, being more sort of data centric, uh, which kind of takes away some of the, the unconscious bias that, uh, that, that exists. Um, you know, it, 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 I think it's, a, it's very exciting to see the number of innovations going on. I, I think an, another um, big sort of point I want to make is, is around the sheer mass of our, of our cl- cluster. There are today, I, I don't know, 10, 20 times the number of VCs than there were uh, 10, 20 years ago. There were, it's a great time to be a venture capitalist. It's a pretty good time to be an entrepreneur as well. But there's, it's a great time to be in, in VC. The sector has a, has a greater, much more mass than it ever has. And that means there are new tools. There are more people thinking about it. There are more people writing about it. And it's becoming a, a, a sort of maturing, maturing sector. Um, and, and I think that's, that's all you know, stuff to be positive about. Absolutely. Uh, it, it is uh, fair to say that progress has been made. And I think we should, uh, to, to Jennifer's point, I really love that point at the outset, that it's a momentum game. Let's shine a light on the momentum that has happened as, as we look to the forward, because that can compound and we can see that really start to to move forward. Um, this has been a phenomenal conversation so far. And I, I, Gillian, I, I want to give you uh, some time for for thoughts we haven't covered. Um, what, are you, what is your perspective as you sit back at this conversation? Uh, where are we going to be going in the next couple of years and, and how do we get there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think hopefully we are going in the direction and this is both hopeful and maybe wishful thinking, but also thinking that we've kind of seen the data and know what we need to do that more and more diverse founders are going to be funded. And that can be both, and teams will just be more diverse and, and venture capitalists will be looking at it and looking for that. And not because they just want to kind of write one check to say that they've done it, but because they understand the deep value to it. I think we've seen a lot of funds um, like similar to Jen's that have specific mi- missions and whatnot, and spe- especially focused on diversity, which I think is terrific. Um, and some of them are doing extremely well. But you also don't want to see that you just have, you can only go to one of these types of funds, but you want to see that any type of fund, that any generalist fund will be willing to back you and excited to back you. And so we hope to continue to see that to grow. Um, and, and I think that sort of we're seeing early signs that that is, th- that is the way that it's going. Here, here. Um, David, how about yourself? Um, capitalizing on the momentum, uh, what do you think comes next? Well, Simon, I, I am uh, by nature a great optimist. I'm really excited about where we are today. I know we're all locked up at home at the moment and uh, unable to go out and live life, live life normally, but I, I can just imagine the thousands of prospective entrepreneurs out there who are thinking, you know, Life's got to be different to this. We've, we we need to do things differently in the future. There's how much introspection is going on right now, and how many people are thinking about starting up a company. And you know, it, one of the interesting things about COVID is that we've all got used to this flexi working, this remote working thing. And I think that's fantastic for women and female founders uh, who you know face barriers of of childcare and um, and you know all, all sorts of other. Uh, responsibilities, which just create, you know, I think the barriers are just being pulled down every day at the moment. And, and you know, that, that's got to be a positive thing. So hopefully coming out of this, we're going to see more companies being, being founded. We're going to see more people um, accepting flexi working as a norm. You, know, you don't have to be in the office anymore. You don't have to uh, be out of a certain mold. You know, think, think the, the whole system can really be shaken up. And then with the pressure from the LPs and the and the and the, the activity amongst the, um, you know, the, the the you know it goes right back to schools. You know, how many, are we getting enough kids doing 
um, science and technology and maths uh, and engineering and software development, you know, coding, coding for women. Um, you know, th- th- these are great and important things to focus on. So all of this is coming together and it's going to be positive. Thank you, David. I, I love that point about um, lockdown has forced us to see the world differently. Um, I don't know if everybody's been following, but there's a big Miami movement at the moment. Um, and there's a big like everywhere but San Francisco movement. And there are a number of obviously social pressures that have driven that to happen in San Francisco. But I, I've certainly felt this as somebody sitting in, in the UK, um, that suddenly the world got a bit smaller and a bit more global. And suddenly the, the networking got a little bit easier. Um, and let's hope that is helping the underrepresented uh, find a voice as well. You don't have to have come from uh, Stanford with an engineering um, sort of qualification in order to get a meeting anymore. Let's hope that becomes the case, but we know um, that there's still so much to do. Uh, Jennifer, if you want to uh, close us out with your, like, uh, where are we going and, and uh, what do we need to get done? So I appreciate David's optimism and, and I am an optimistic person as well, but I also worry that we May, there's a risk that we say, great, we are all talking about this. We're talking about the need to fund female founders, more diverse founders. Great, we're done. Um, and if you look at the stats, actually, the pandemic has been has hit women particularly hard. So in the, the data for 2020, funding for female founders was down 27%. Um, in December alone, the, the jobs lost in the US were 100% borne by women. And so I think that we have made so much progress. It is top of mind for so many people. And now is the time to really double down. Um, And, you know, I am of the mind that this is not something that an LP is going to mandate or any, you know, more traditional VC is going to say like, oh, you know, we now have to make this a big part of our strategy. I think what is going to really uh, make long lasting shifts and, and drive towards more equality in venture is seeing the returns that in this case, female founders generate. And so what what I am excited going forward is seeing the momentum that I see female founders have, particularly at the growth stage. I mean, in um, 2019, there were 20 new female founded unicorns and we're seeing that begin to accelerate. And so, you know, what I am looking forward to is sort of the, the proof that comes from this and seeing women drive real success, generate real returns so that, uh, and frankly, become household names in a way that means we can't make this just an episodic conversation. It becomes a really part of the DNA of venture as a whole. Let, let's hope it does become part of the DNA and let's hope this conversation is, is just the beginning of many that we're able to have on this platform and, and many, many others. Um, I'm, so grateful to all of you for sharing your thoughts today. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Um, Jillian, uh, where can people find out more about you and what you're doing? Absolutely. You can find me on our website, which is anthemus.com, or on Twitter with my handle is jillwillnyc. Thank you so much. And David? Uh, my website is oxcp.com for Oxford Capital, and my Twitter handle is at David Mott. Thank you so much. And last but by no means least, uh, Jennifer? Our website is january.ventures, and you'll see there our link to pitch us. We accept cold pitches, again, making ourselves accessible. And you can find me on Twitter at jkk, and our January is at january underscore vc. 
I love it. Accepting cold pitches. What a crazy idea. And um, thank you so much for bringing that into the universe. I think the world needs it. Um, there's a, uh, a 16 year old me that would have loved something like that back in the day. So thank you so much for being that person. Um, and you can find me at SY Taylor on Twitter or Simon Taylor on LinkedIn. Uh, I want to thank you for listening. Uh, if you'd like what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us make the show so much better and it helps others find the show as well. So if you love this conversation, Go leave that review now. Go do it. Go leave the review. Uh, and as always, if you want to join in the conversation, you can find us on social media. Just search for 11FS, Authentic Insider. And last but by no means least, if you still like email, you can email podcast at 11FS.com. Any suggestion for content you've got, throw it at us. Any suggestion for guests, throw it at us. Thank you very much and goodbye for now.